So we are starting a September series called Entrusted. We finished up with the Replicate series where we ended up last Sunday with Make a Difference and Help Others to Make a Difference. And uh, got uh, several comments about the, the series. It was a lot of fun to do. Uh, uh, true confessions from a pastor. The hardest thing to do is to start a new series. Because once we get rolling on one, it starts getting a little bit of a life of its own. And one thing builds on another. And we're all on the same page. But we're starting the new series Sunday called Entrusted. And it is a stewardship series. It's a little different stewardship series because I'm not going to talk about money until the last week. And so we're going to talk about stewardship in general and how stewardship is more than money. And the, the bumper video, we say it's time, treasure, and talents. And we're not going to talk about treasure until the last week. Um, this week, we're going to talk about time and specifically Creation and work, stewardship of creation and stewardship of work. It's Labor Day weekend. Why not? And then next Sunday is Mission Sunday, and I am super excited. Jeff is going to be guiding a sermon that includes Jesse and Brian. So Brian Burt and Jesse Tobadoya. And Jeff will be talking about how we use our particular gifts that God has given us in ministry, in conversation, in everyday life. So it'll be a stewardship of gifts, talents, time this week, talents next week, treasure the last week. We'll talk about money. Uh, all I do when I talk about money at this church is to thank you. I, in seven years, I've never had to beg for money, and uh, it has been an amazing journey, and um, so we'll, we'll, we'll put that in perspective as to what treasure is and, and how God continues to multiply uh, what we give him. And then the last Sunday in September is the State of the Church Sunday, and then, of course, the business meeting. On Sunday night, please make plans to come. We'll be voting on the budget, voting on personnel, finance, nominating, leadership, missions. So we staff all the teams. I tell the, the staff that our fall meeting is perspirational and our spring meeting is inspirational. So we brag on all the good things God is doing in the spring business meeting. And in the fall, we have to do all the work. Our deacons, our um, nominating team, leadership team, personnel team, finance team, missions team, vote on the budget. So we do the hard work in the fall and we get to celebrate in the spring. All right. So that's where we're headed. And tonight I want to talk about stewardship in general and then move into what God has told us about stewardship of our earth, which leads us to the subject of work. And I'll try to build that bridge in Genesis in just a moment. Uh, in my notes, I wrote, stewardship begins not with a what, but with a who. 
Think how silly this conversation is to non-Christians. Now we 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 are in a mindset where if we value something, we expect to give to it. If you join a, a community pool, you you expect to be asked to to uh, help with the board of directors or the cleanup day or uh, take your turn as a lifeguard or uh, come to the fundraiser or pay your dues. If you're in a uh, any any kind of a hobby or if there's a, an HOA in your neighborhood, there there's an expectation that if I am a part of something, I give to it. I I contribute to it. I I bring my offerings. I bring my my time, my talent, my treasure. It's it's it, that that's the the roll up of stewardship. But if I tell a non-believer that over the past Four years, this church has given well over $12 million towards a building program. A non-believer would say, boy, what a charlatan you are. You sure pulled the wool over their eyes. How in the world did you cheat that many people out of that much money? Because it's, it's we, we don't understand it. If we reduce stewardship to a monetary transaction, we don't get it either. If we think a stewardship series is all about money, then, then we don't get it. Because a, a, a stewardship is not paying our fees. It's not, it's not being assessed uh, like at a golf course when they need to, to you know, redo the clubhouse or whatever. They assess all the members. It, that, that's not what we're talking about at all. It's, it, it's a response that is relational not a, a payment for something transactional. And, and so when we talk about stewardship, we're, we're, we're talking about a, um, a, a relationship that, that uh, inspires a response. Um, and, and that's what we saw in Project Main Street was that people felt like they were a part of something. We, the, the, the plans were inspiring and of course the, the end result is stunning. And we felt like we were a part of something. We felt like we were doing something. Anybody know where the word stewardship comes from? In Old English, the word sty means house. Like a big sty is a place for pigs. So a, a sty was a house. A ward was the person who managed the house. So a sty ward is a steward. And uh, the, the, the idea of stewardship is not giving money, but managing resources, managing uh, um, allocation of resources that are human resources, that are financial resources, that are existing uh, um, assets and, uh, and a sort of a, a wisdom. So it's the, the, the word, the sty word had more to do with discernment and decisions and wisdom than it did with accounting. And so the, the, the term, 
the thought goes all the way back to Genesis chapter one, and that's where I want to start uh, because there's so many things about biblical stewardship. So go to the very first page of your Bible after all the stuff in the front. And um, in the, the creation story, we have the example that God did what for six days? He worked. He worked. Six-day work week. Seventh day, took a day off. Watched a few ball games. So in the beginning, God created, and, and in Genesis, the, the term for creation and the term for work are are sort of interchangeable. Creation is work. And and God created. He worked. And, and we are given a front row seat as to the, the, the work product that, that, that on day one, this happened. On day two, this happened. On day three, this happened. On day four, happened. And then on the, the sixth day, uh, the scripture says that Man was created, verse 26 in chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Now there are dissertations that have been written on what it means to be in the image of God. I'll save that for another Wednesday night. But suffice to say that, that at the very least, to be made in God's image is to be made as a person who can reason, as a person who can uh, know right and wrong, as a person who can work, who can create. An animal, you might say work, but, but I'd probably use the term forage. You know, an animal is constantly looking for food, where a man... Uh, a woman is, is able to measure, to plan work, and to, as they say, to, to plan our work and to work our plan. Uh, that, 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 that discernment, sty ward, that, 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 that ability to manage the work as it depicts God doing in creation. He, he, he had a very systematic plan. This had to be for this, had to be for this, had to be. Now, you can decide if he made bees first or flowers first, but I know they didn't exist long without each other. And, and, and so there was this intricate plan that we might look back and call it work. Verse 26, God blessed them. He said to them, their first work instruction, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, Subdue it, steward it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, I've given you every plant yielding seed, every tree. You shall have them for food. Uh, verse 30, the beasts of the air. Uh, Genesis 1, verse 26 through 30. Um, I've given everything for you. And look at 31. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, 
it was very good. So he pronounced work as good. He, he looked back on his work week. Good week. Good week. I think I'll take the weekend. Well, at least one day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished. All the host of them on the seventh day, God did what? What does it say first? Finished his work. And he rested. And so the we, we have from the very opening pages of the scripture, we have that that he blessed, he ordained, he he uh he spoke work into existence. And on Labor Day, I get it, we celebrate work by taking the day off. And it's it's very biblical almost that, that when work is done, rest follows, and he pronounced that it's good. And so now he sort of says to man, it's your turn. You're going to work. Now, the thing we don't get from the story of God working is that there would be days of work that would be unpleasant. Days of work that were hard. I'm looking out around the room and I can see some of you had hard days, hard weeks. Sometimes work, uh, whether you were a mom or whether you were a teacher or a manager or an accountant or whatever your work is, there, there are days that it's hard. And you almost want to say, well, God, your, your work seemed delightful. You created this and you created that, and there's creepy crawly things, and there's light, and there's darkness, and there's water, and there's firmament, and, and it's like this, this almost the Fantasia movie where just stuff is going on all the time. But then when man got involved, it was hard. Verse 15 in chapter 2. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, why did God need man to work anything? You know, there's an old joke uh, about a, a preacher who visited a farmer. And the farmer's farm was just immaculate. The fences were all perfect and the fields were plowed and the animals were Tended and the uh, paint was fresh and the grass was green where it should be green and and the preacher said I'm just in awe at what God has done here and the farmer said you should have seen this place when he had it by himself <laughs> so you you get this you get a, a clear idea that whether we're joking about it or we're reading here that. God intended for work to be what? A partnership. It, 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 was, it was Jerry Bridges who said discipleship, like farming, is a partnership relationship with God. Man cannot do what God must do, and God will not do what man should do. There's a, there's a partnership, and that's work. That's the work. And so he puts man in the garden and said, go to work. And I don't know what work there was, 
you know, at this point in time, there's innocence. Um, there's there's no weeds. No, it wouldn't be hard to eat if there were weeds. Tending that uh, tree. Well, leave leave that tree alone. Not only did he tell him to work, he told him to work everywhere except that one place. Maybe gathering fruit, gathering food, uh, uh, man being able to participate in God's abundance. We don't know. But what happened between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3? The fall. So all of a sudden, over here in chapter 3, verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he is taken. He said that the, the promise that, that, is that, that there's work that was going to be hard, uh, that the childbearing would be rough, or a woman, three twenty-three. Sorry, I I need to do better. Um, um, and, and in between, where he's working the Garden of Eden and where he's working, where he's kicked out of the garden, it, it, the, the the same terminology is used. In chapter one, you will work the Garden of Eden. In chapter three, you're kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and now, Paige, I think there's weeds. I think there's a lot of weeds, and 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 he he says the 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 prophecy uh, in the beginning in verse uh, fourteen when God is speaking to the servant serpent, uh, he says uh, um, that the serpent will crawl on uh, the dust, and to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. To the man he says, you. Uh, uh, have eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. So maybe that's the that's the statement that tells us what it was like to work the garden. Gather food. There it is, laying on the ground. Take it home. Get it ready for supper. In pain you shall eat of it. Verse seventeen in chapter three. Chapter three seventeen. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You shall eat bread till you return from the ground. Out For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you will return. Doesn't sound like a meeting of the Optimist Club to me. And so we get a, a picture that work became something less than a joyful jaunt through the garden, picking up ripe fruit to take it home for supper because of the fall. Because of the fall. Now, I have always loved looking at the story of the fall in terms of three very important questions. And you guys have heard me say this in church before, but but it, it seems to work here because we're talking about work. And when we talk about the reason that work is hard now, and it didn't used to be, pre-fall, there are three questions that God asked Adam after 
He ate from the tree of knowledge. He said, where are you? And I think it was a spiritual checkup question. And I think it's a good question to ask when we go to work. Because on Sunday, what I'm going to do is to try to bridge the gap. How do we take God to work with us? How do we, uh, I'll go ahead and tell you the words I'm going to use. Vocation is our calling. Occupation is our work. How do we bring our vocation? How do I become a, a, a follower of Christ who happens to be a doctor, who happens to be a lawyer, who happens to be a pastor, a teacher, a stay-at-home mom? How do I be a follower of Christ who happens to do that for an occupation? Instead of, I'm a teacher, and oh yeah, I go to church. How do I lead with my vocation and bring that into my occupation? And so he says, where are you? Where, where are you spiritually? You're, you're obviously distant from me. So I'm kind of wondering where you are. What was the second question he asked? Who told you? That was the third question. Who told you were naked? Who told you? Think about that. <clears throat> Who did you give authority to? Who did you... Who did you allow to be your boss? At some point, some voice told you to do something that you knew was not a godly thing. And whether it is the serpent in the garden or a boss or a board of directors or a headmaster or a foreman or a pastor, if, if there are voices speaking to us at work, that later on we're going to have to hear God say, who told you that was okay? Who, who told you that that was good? I pronounce work good. And, and it's very systematic. And it's very edifying. And it builds up. It doesn't tear down. It produces beauty. It does not demean people. It does not demean value of anything. Who told you that was okay? And then the third question, what have you done? What have you done? Now, did God need to be told? No. He was asking Adam to own it. He was asking Adam to be honest about his sin. And I think with, when we think about work, where are you? Who told you? What have you done? There, there, there are three pretty good questions to take to work with us to make sure that our vocation is very, very present in our occupation. There, there will be times uh, where we all have had to assess our workplace and see if it was too toxic for us to stay because we knew we were being damaged spiritually uh, as a result of it. Any questions so far? Okay, Genesis chapter. Yeah. Is a serpent the devil? Yeah. No doubt about it. Okay. Have you heard differently? No. Yeah. Um, there, throughout um, art, um, the, the serpent has been the, the representation. And uh, a lot of people make um, 
a particular point over the personification of a snake. There, there were no other animals, to our knowledge, that talked. There were, there were no other animals that reasoned. Uh, the, so it's obvious that the serpent had some characteristics of being made in the image of God. And the Bible presents Satan as a created being. And so um, for those reasons, uh, Gerald, it's commonly accepted that the serpent was Satan. Great question. So the work got hard when they were chased from the Garden of Eden. But who is God by nature? Is he one that can leave something broken, broken? Is he one that can leave something that's shameful to be shameful? You know, we, we leave Genesis and we very quickly understand that God is a God of restoration. Now, a side note here. And what I would rather not explore a lot, unless any of you want to. Uh, we have a whole lot of discussion these days about environment and global warming and green energy and renewable resources and recycling and pollution and toxicity and contamination and uh, a disregard for earth, disregard for planet. It is my belief, and I, I got this from reading Chuck Colson's book, How Now Shall We Live? It's a 700-page quick read that goes from the laws of thermodynamics to the theory of irreducible complexity. Uh, Colson was a pretty smart guy. But in that, he says, he makes the statement, he, he claims the position that when Adam and Eve were chased out of the garden, and he said, it's going to be tough out there, that he wasn't just talking about breaking up hard ground with a flat. He was talking about working the culture. He wasn't just talking about creating food and farming. He, he was talking about from, from now on, you will not be in the utopian place where everybody's on the same page. The, the, the exodus from the garden, almost immediately, Adam and Eve's son killed his brother. And so you're going to have to work the culture. And I think a lot of that is this discussion of how much responsibility do we have for ecology? How, how much should Christians care about the planet? And my answer is that we should care a lot. But we should be heightened spiritually to where we don't get caught up in political or quasi-political discussions where we forget that God's plan in the garden was relationship with himself. 
and that if that is intact, then, then ecology will follow, green energy will follow. And I'm not trying to put blinders on and say, all we got to do is pray and China will put pollute in the air. That's it's not going to happen. But what I'm saying is that we as Christians can get caught up because we're sure that global warming is a conspiracy. It's not really happening. We're sure that global warming is happening and it is the destruction of the planet and we will have uh, the trees can't keep up because we will overwhelm them with carbon dioxide. It is a catastrophe. Uh, and it's gone so far that some people on the extreme end of global warming have said that a justification for abortion is that global warming is causing crisis due to overpopulation. And so it just calls the herd. And I'm going, do we really get to that? Kind of an argument with this, right? And so, 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 if we're talking about global warming, ninety-seven percent of the scientists believe that we are uh, affecting the planet through industry and overpopulation. Okay, we probably are. I, it seems common sense to me that if more people are breathing out carbon dioxide, there's more carbon dioxide around. And if we're tearing down the trees that God used to scrub carbon dioxide and turn it back into oxygen, it makes sense to me that there's a problem. Now, is the problem we give it all of our attention and quit talking about God? No. <laughs> no. I think we can see clearly that whenever we forget balance between nature and humankind, that, that we get out of balance. That's the, uh, much of the Psalms is, is about that. And the Psalm I want to kind of move us over to, Psalm 24, that's what that's about. I just wonder if you could explain something. In uh, Genesis 3, the Lord says, uh, what does I mean? Uh, what does that mean when he's um, put it um, Regarded being on the east side, he built a cherubim and, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, that's it. No, no more paradise. Which tree did? Uh, did you all hear the question online? Were you able to hear the question? No. That it, that it was about why, why the cherubim with the, the sword of fire. Right. Why speak up a bit. Okay. The question was uh, in Genesis 3, why, when they were kicked out of the garden, did God guard the tree of life with a cherubim? And you know the difference between a cherubim and a seraphim, right? A cherubim had four legs and a seraphim had six. You know how you can remember that? How many legs does a chair have? It's a cherubim. What does the number six start with? That's a seraphim. So the seraphim had six wings and the cherubim had four. And he put an angel, they're both angels, but he guarded which tree? Which one did Adam eat from? Hmm. He said, if you know what you know, you don't need to live forever. 
It also seems like it was a thing of mercy because if they ate from the tree of life and their sinful nature, that would be that from now on. Sin would have an eternal life on it. So he guarded the tree of life, eternal life, and he later sent his only son so that eternal life in heaven would be secured. But he didn't want eternity on earth to be a thing now that there was sin in the world. We good? Huh? It's a great question, but sometimes we assume that he guarded the same tree that Adam ate from. And Adam ate from the tree of knowledge, which brought sin into the world. And God loves us so much that he would not let uh, even after the flood, he said, we're going to put a, a cap on human life because humans tend to make their life more and more miserable. And if I keep letting them live 900 years like Methuselah, then uh, the, then that misery will just extend. That, that's my take on it, um, that there's, there's not a, a, a solid theological answer to that, except that we have to note that he guarded a different tree than Adam ate from. And, and that's that's where I feel like that's the, the solution. Psalm 24. We dealt with Psalm 24 a couple of weeks ago in worship, but we dealt with the verses after verse 1. We talked about the, the fact that the priest was calling us into worship, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, those with clean hands, pure heart, has not lifted up his soul to vanity. But we sort of skipped over the first verse. It says, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. And we, we get the steward idea because we're the manager of the house, the steward of the house. We, we don't own it. We don't own anything. We, we, uh, this, this earth is not our home. We're, we're passing through. One theologian said we are resident aliens. We're, we're, we're green carded here. We, we, we get to be here for a little while, but we're just renting. We don't own anything. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. So we get the biblical theology of work from Genesis. And then we bridge in Psalms to uh, what, it, what it means to say it's not ours. So we're, we're managing. We're, we're just operating uh, best we can. Can you think of a parable that Jesus told that uh, may have uh, touched on this a little bit. The parable of the talents. Oh, yeah. When Jesus said, uh, I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, there was a very rich man and he was going on a long journey and he had three servants, three stewards. And to one he gave 10 talents, to one he gave five talents, to one he gave one talent. And the story is that the 
steward. He gave 10 talents, multiplied it, and said, here's your 10 and 10 more. The steward who was given five talents said, here's your five and five more. The steward who had one talent said, I know that you're a, a harsh manager. You're a harsh master. I buried it in the ground. Here's what you gave me. I protected it. I didn't lose it. And what was the conclusion of the story? You killed it. You also didn't manage it. You were, you aren't a steward. A steward has the master's interest in mind. A steward says, let me, let me run this. It's not mine. When I was uh, in high school, I was the um, the night employee at a gas station. And when I look back now and think when I was a sophomore in high school, what was I, 16 years old? From 6 o'clock until 10 o'clock, Monday through Thursday, I was the only employee at the mobile gas station on Rockbridge Road in Stone Mountain. How crazy is that? I closed up. I checked out the pumps. I locked up the bathrooms. I closed out the register. And all I remember is I want to do the best job I can because somebody's going to say, he's just a kid. He's not able to do all that. And I, and I had the emotion of wanting to be a good steward. Now, there were other places I worked where I didn't care. You know, I, I don't don't pat me on the back and say, what a good little worker you were. It was my first real job. And I, and I wanted to do a good job. But I, I, I kind of got the thought of this is the, the attitude of a steward. It's not somebody who, who says, let me just hope nothing goes wrong. It's let the, 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 the owner of the gas station come in the next morning and say, okay, he painted the curbs, he, he cleaned the bathrooms, he took out the trash. He wasn't just sitting in the office trying to let time pass. He was doing things that a steward would do, not just the things an employee might do. And so the, 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 the idea of work is stewardship. Stewardship, and it's to assume that we are acting in the best interest of the master because the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Now, got a little bit of time left. I'd like to, to kind of move over and acknowledge that work today is hard. That there are, there are times that work is just really hard. In 1 Corinthians 10 and in Colossians 3, there is a similar line of thought. In 1 Corinthians 10, it, uh, it goes into just a little bit more detail. Um, when he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 23, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. And I'm thinking about how do I be a steward at work and represent the master well? The earth is the Lord and all that is within it. 1 Corinthians 10, 
23. So when I go to work, and I, I know that I can do something this way, or I can do something this way, and they're both legal, they're both acceptable. They're, they're, one may be a little bit of a shortcut, but nobody's going to think less of me if I, if I didn't have time to clean the bathrooms or take out the trash. No, nobody's going to think less of me. But Paul says, all things are lawful, but not everything is popular. Not everything, uh, as uh, the English Standard Version says, not all things are helpful, all things are lawful, but not all things build up. Not, not all things uh, edify is uh, what some of your Bibles may say. The word edifice is a building, so to edify is to build up. And so not, not all things build up. And so we think about our attitude when we go to work. We are, we are stewards of something much bigger than just whatever our employer is. We are stewards of the gospel. We are stewards of the earth is the Lord's and all that is within it. We are stewards of something so much bigger. So when we go to work, which God said was good, which God said we will have to do in order to eat, which is part of the way we interact with the culture, then we get the opportunity to do things at work, and some of them are lawful but not good. Some of them are acceptable but not profitable. Some of them are, are sort of the minimum daily requirement. You, you can get by with that. Or read on. He repeats what the Lord said. Look at verse 26. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's quoting Psalm 24 1. We just read. And then he, he, he says, if, if an unbeliever invites you to dinner and you're disposed to go eat whatever's before you, uh, this is where he talks about not causing unbelievers to stumble, and he ends his, his discussion, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, verse 31 in chapter 10, whatever you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. And that's certainly what he picked up in Colossians, uh, when in Colossians chapter 1, Let me get there. I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. Colossians 3, 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So I'm putting these together in my head. And I'm going, okay, Genesis tells us that God worked, that work is good, that sin corrupts everything. It corrupts our play, it corrupts our families, it corrupted the relationship between Adam and Eve, it planted a seed for Cain to kill Abel, 
Uh, it got them kicked out of the garden. It disrupted God's plan that man would live forever. It, it sin disrupted everything, and certainly it disrupted work. So it shouldn't surprise us that when we go to work, there are difficult people and difficult situations and things that we are asked to do that we would rather not do, either because they're hard or because they don't seem right. And there are, are, are times when we ask ourselves, should I say something? Should I do something? What, what, what do I do in order to, uh, to make sure that I am a steward of the gospel, a steward of a bigger thing? If I have been vocal about my relationship with Christ and then I pledge a tax return or I, I take a shortcut uh, in a construction site or I uh, don't tell the truth in a deposition, if, if I do those kinds of things, then I may be saying yes to my earthly boss but at best, I'm burying my talent in the sand. I'm certainly not multiplying what God gave me. So there are really hard things that sometimes happen at work. And I had to ask myself, what kinds of things would warrant me saying I can't work there? What kinds of things would happen that would say, I've got to say to my boss, this is not right, this is not best. Uh, what what are the, the situations that would cause me to have to speak up? All things are lawful, but not everything is profitable. But what we know for sure is that we represent the master who is the owner of all things. So I wanted a story that would kind of close us out, a, a, a story that would help us to kind of uh, build the bridge between um, vocation and occupation. We, we've got a, 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 an idea that how we're supposed to work in Colossians is we do everything for the glory of God. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not painting curbs or cleaning restrooms at the mobile station late at night. Uh, because I, I want to earn points. I, I want to think that as a 16-year-old a baby Christian, I'd only been a Christian for a couple of years, but I'd been discipled enough to the point where I knew that I, I, I didn't just perform for earthly bosses, that I that I had a, a heavenly father who watched over me, who, who, who cared about the decisions that I made. So I wanted to do all for the glory of God and true confessions. That's not been the case in every job I've ever had. There's, there's been more times than not where I've said, how do I get this done and get out of here? And true confessions, when I worked in the parts department at the car dealership, at five o'clock, we had the key in the door ready to turn it. And if you were watch, walking across the parking lot, needing a solenoid switch, you weren't going to get it that day if you didn't depart the bar at 501. And, and so I, I can't tell you I have always acted as though the earth is the Lord's and all that is with me. 
but I, I've seen enough to know when I did and when I didn't. So in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is finishing up the Sermon on the Mount. And we, we've been talking a little bit about the Sermon on the Mount. We've talked about chapter 5, salt and light. We've talked about the Beatitudes, uh, chapter 5, the first several verses. Chapter 6 is fantastic. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will come into place. Chapter 7 gets a little tougher because he starts off talking about judging others. Then he talks about prayer and our faithlessness in prayer. Then he gets a little closer to home. He says, you will know a tree by its fruit. Last night, I went with Derek Milner, our associate youth pastor, down to Georgia State University. And he was the speaker for the Georgia State weekly worship service. And he was the speaker because Brian has COVID again. Brian's had COVID four times. He's had Alpha. He's had Delta. He's had Omicron. He might sound like a fraternity. And uh, so he's had it again. And, and Derek was going to fill in for him. And I listened to, te- to Derek's testimony in front of those college students where he said a pivotal moment in his life was when he was in college and God kept bringing up the phrase, if there's no change, there's probably no Jesus. If there's no change, there's probably no Jesus. Because Jesus loves us just like we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. And so Jesus tells the these two parables back to back. One is the golden rule. The, he said that whatever you wish that others would do to you, do that to them. So let, let your standard be an awareness that what you do to someone else you might not want someone to do that to you. So, so now he's zeroing in. And, I, and I'm thinking about how this might apply to me at work. You know, do I eat somebody else's lunch in the refrigerator in the snack room? <laughs> You're dairy. And so he, and then he says that you'll know a tree by its fruit. And so he's, he's, he's taking it down the road just a little bit further. He says that a, a good tree will not produce bad fruit. A bad tree will not produce good fruit. So he says, if, and, and, and I'm going to borrow the terms if, that we're using. If, you're, if you are truly devoted to the master, if you are truly a steward of the master, if you've got Jesus, you've got change, if you are devoted to the master, then your tree has to produce fruit that reflects the master. Then he says sort of the the contra of that statement. He said there will be people who think they're Christians because they've said the right words, they've been in the right places, they've joined the right clubs, but at judgment time, God will say, I never knew you. And all of those things in chapter 7 are prefaced to his, his story 
where he says, build your house on the rock. Everyone who hears verse 24, chapter 7, Matthew 7, 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a what? So all of a sudden, wisdom is connected with stewardship. Wisdom is connected with work. And we're all the way back to God wanted us to be discerning. God wanted us to be uh, 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 compassionate. God wanted us to be, uh, that, that our work would be systematic and, and, and compassionate and, and discerning and wise. So a wise man build a house with what? Foundation. Solid foundation. So if my work is my house, then my solid foundation is that I, I show integrity in the little. I, 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 I practice self-awareness to where I'm not lying at home, so I'm not lying at work. I'm not lying in the little things because then I'll lie in the big things. I'm not uh, trying to, to take the path of least resistance when that wouldn't be the, 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 the path of excellence. Now, if I can find an easier way to do something well, I'm just smart. But if I'm just trying to find a shortcut, then, then, then I am not working with integrity. My foundation, a wise man says he counts the cost. A storm is going to come. A conversation at work is going to come. I'm going to be challenged at work. And I, I used to tell youth ministers this all the time. When we when we talk about what we have to have on our resume, the number one item is integrity. Because when the storm comes against our integrity, when somebody said, hey, I heard a rumor about Alan at that Dunwoody church. I want people in the community to say, stop it. I know Alan. And what you're saying could not have happened. And then Jesus is saying, if we build our house, whether it's our church house, our home house, our work house, if we build it with a solid foundation, what is the solid foundation? These words of mine, these things that I've told you, I've told you about a tree and its fruit. I've told you about judging others. I've told you about the golden rule. I've told you that everybody who thinks they're getting in is not getting in. Because there is a lack of integrity there. There is a, a lack of authenticity about who you say you are. And he says, if you build your foundation with rock, on rock, then when the rains fall, the floods come, they do not fall because it's been founded on the rock. I, I think about that as I go to work. Now, a quick side note. I know it's past seven, so sorry. I am blessed. My vocation and my occupation get to happen in the same way. I am blessed. You know, God decided to pluck me out of corporate America, and, and, and he let my occupation and my vocation all happen at the same place. I love who I speak for. I love who I speak to. I love what I do. But I didn't always love that. And it became a challenge to bring my vocation 
and my occupation into the same space because the culture that I was told to work when I was kicked out of the garden for my own sin, the culture that I was told to work is not necessarily friendly to things of God. And so our challenge in stewardship is to bring occupation and vocation into the same space. All that you do, do for the glory of God. Alan, this is Jerome Carlin. I have a cliche here on my wall that I wanted it. It's not quite on point. It says, if you enjoy your work, you will never work a day in your life. Well, I would say if you can manage to bring your vocation and your occupation to the same place, then that cliche now is very true. I have a quick question. A, a bit ago, you said if there's no change, and then I missed the rest of that statement. If there's no change, there's probably no Jesus. Um, now, don't hear that as a judgmental statement because there's change that's instant that we can't see. That's a promise. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The word there is metamorphosis. It's the radical change from a caterpillar to a butterfly. And the changes are incremental at first. But looking back, Emily, you're a butterfly. All right. What do you have somebody over here? Yeah, I just want to say something. Like when you do something, says Colossians 3 23, helping whatever you do, work and be working for the Lord, not for the man who is your master. And that's how you see your fruit. Then you know who is your master, not your boss, not the paycheck coming from, but your God in heaven. And that's if you forgive your heart. So this verse is one of my favorite because that's what you always, whatever you do, I love the way you said that, Blinka. Colossians 3.23. Work as if you're working to the Lord, not for the man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well said. Gary, would you pray for us? Yes. Yeah, I mean, thank you for calling us and uh, allowing us to do the work that you said in front of us. God, we live in a, a, a sinful world and uh, we know that work was not originally intent, intended to be burdensome, but it has somehow become that. Uh, but God, we ask that you uh, put in front of us the a clear vision of the work that you would have us do. And God, just... Bless us in those efforts, God, knowing that it's the work that you want done. God, there's so many distractions that can get in the way, and it's so easy to get uh, drawn aside to other side things that don't matter as much. Uh, but God, we know that you have a work for us to do. We're grateful that you chose us to do it. Help us to be faithful in that. In Christ's name, amen.